Welcome to the Hope Fellowship Podcast, where you can listen to our weekly walk through the Bible. We do hope you enjoy your time with us today. Please check us out at hopehogesville.com. And if you feel led to support our ministry, please click the link in this episode's description. Now here's this week's walk through the Bible. Let's read Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 38. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to, into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now that is kind of the conclusion of his sermon. But then you hear the response in verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to kind of walk through these together. So the emphasis, I believe, is really on the fact that Jesus um, is Lord and Savior. And the question is, what is your response to the fact that Jesus is Lord and Savior? And that's that's the question that these people were led to ask by the Spirit of God. They heard this message, they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they heard Peter preach Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior, and then they were compelled to ask, what should we do about that? And that's the question we all have to ask. Now, I think uh, in the room that I have this morning, I think a lot of us are believers, most of us are. 
So I think most of us have already kind of answered that question. We've asked that question. We've come to the Lord and said, God, we believe in you. We trust in you by faith. How would you like us to respond? And, and uh, he has compelled us to, to repent and to be saved. And uh, from there, I think I would also like to encourage you as believers, and we're looking back through this, to remember, too, that we're not only the listeners, but we're also witnesses as well, in a sense, like the apostles. We're not the same as the apostles. But in a sense, we have a similar task and that we continue to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. So I would like to invite you to look at this also from the lens of Peter, um, who is preaching the gospel. Observe how he preached the gospel and how he responded to um, the people as the spirit was leading their hearts. It might be that the Lord would give you an opportunity to find somebody who needs to hear this message and you could preach it in a similar fashion. One thing that you might notice here is Peter's use of the Old Testament. Peter twice quotes David from the Old Testament and points out David's words in the Old Testament and points out Jesus as the fulfillment of those words. Uh, it is, it is a, an affirmation here in the New Testament of the relevance of the Old Testament. You have a New Testament writer preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, in the New Covenant world with uh, post-resurrection and ascension of Jesus after having been filled with the Holy Spirit, still applying the Old Testament as though it is absolutely necessary in order for us to understand our need for salvation. The Old Testament is valid and necessary to be used. So those are some interesting things to look at as we look through this. So Jesus is Lord and Savior. The first thing that I'd like to point out is that we ought to listen to these words. First thing he says is, men of Israel, listen to these words. His first call was to listen. Now, uh, the words are specifically about Jesus, the Nazarene. He said, I want you to listen up. I want you to hear me because I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to give you some explanation about this Jesus, the Nazarene, the one that you know about, the Nazarene who was crucified, whom you crucified. We're going to talk about him for a minute. But that word listen means to pay attention. Take heed to these words. Take them to heart. Don't miss them. And I think if whenever we hear the word of God or whenever we come to God's word and read it, we need to come to it with a heart that's willing to listen. Sometimes I think we, um, we have our own ideas and we have our own conclusions. We've concluded that we already know most of what we've read through God's word and we have a pretty good understanding on it, pretty good grasp on it. And I think it's good for us to remember that God when he speaks to us, he calls us to listen, not just to the writers, but to him specifically. He is the one who's written us these words. We need to listen for the voice of God as he is speaking these words to us. And we, every time we read his word, we need to ask God, what are you saying? And what does that mean about how I'm living? And what does that mean about my faith and how I should respond it is an active listening. It's a leaning in. It's, it's like making eye contact with somebody when you're talking to them. Um, some people have a harder time with that than others. But when you make eye contact with people, it shows that you care about what they're saying when they're talking to you. And it's similar to that. When you come to God's word, it's like making eye contact with God. You're saying, okay, God, I'm going to listen for you. I'm going to listen to what you're saying. And Peter is 
drawing the attention of all these people. He's given, he's already kind of given an explanation about what they're witnessing. They're witnessing this miracle. And some of them thought maybe they were drunk. And he says, no, we're not drunk. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. And because we're filled with the Holy Spirit now and the day has come that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But I want you to listen to what I'm about to tell you. Listen very carefully to my explanation of this Jesus, the Nazarene, the one that you crucified. You need to understand who he is because he is the source of your salvation. And then I want you to notice before we dive into the words of his sermon, verse 36. It's kind of the conclusion. He has a one point sermon. This is what he says. Therefore, let the house, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That was his point. He said, I want you to know for certain that this Jesus that you crucified, Jesus the Nazarene, he is both Lord and he is Christ. And he used that word Christ on purpose. He was speaking to, right here he says men of Israel, and later he calls them, um, he calls them brethren. Uh, and uh, so which would have been a reference to the fellow Jews that were standing around. Uh, so he would have, he's addressing the Jews who would have recognized that word Christ as something that was used um, in the Old Testament, uh, a reference to the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised Savior, the one who was going to come and save Israel. And he says, I want you to know for certain that this Jesus whom you killed is both Lord and the Savior that you've been waiting on all along. That's his number one point. And everything that leads up to that, all the details in here, is all about God and what God has done through Jesus Christ. So now as we kind of read back through those words, I'd like you guys to just kind of look through and just notice everything that God does. Everything that God, everything that you hear from verse, uh, verse 22 all the way down through verse 36 is just detail after detail of what God has done through Jesus. So let's kind of walk down through those um, as we listen to these words and as we are, um, as we are, um, as Peter is arguing with our hearts, as he is compelling us to believe that Jesus is Lord and Christ, it's detailed in these words. This is what he says, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God. Now that word attested means proven. So he's saying God is proving to you that Jesus is who he says he is and who he claims to be and has done what he said he's done and will do what he says he will do. He is the Savior. God has proven it through wonders, miracles, and signs. That's what he says. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Meaning that it wasn't just Jesus performing these wonders and miracles and signs. It was God performing them through Jesus. It was the Father. It was the Godhead. It was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all present, working through the physical life of Jesus Christ, performing these miraculous, supernatural signs. And what were the signs? What were the purpose of the signs? Now, first of all, the um, wonders and signs and miracles. Uh, miracles are works of power. Wonders are supernatural signs. And signs are events that have a meaning. So it's different ways of describing these miraculous and supernatural things that Jesus did. 
we kind of oftentimes just kind of sum them up as the miracles of Jesus. Like when you read the Gospels and you read about all the things that Jesus did, um, feeding thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and a few fishes, feeding um, and, and healing people, uh, healing people of blindness and healing people of lameness and healing people of, um, of diseases and, and all the miraculous things that he did, helping Peter to walk on the water, all the things that were seen by men and women and all those who were standing around witnessing the works of Jesus, these were not just, um, these were not just random miracles for the purpose of doing miracles. It was God proving to all who were bearing witness that he is God. Proving to everyone who is bearing witness that he is Lord, that he has authority, that he was sent from God, that he is who he says he is. So these are indicators that Jesus is the Lord, the one whom has the authority from on high, who has authority from the Father, authority from the Creator. He is the one that God the Creator has sent to be the Savior. So he is Lord. All right, so he says, He's attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Verse 23. So, that indicates that God delivered him over. God gave him up for the purpose of being crucified. Specifically by his predetermined plan and his foreknowledge. Now that predetermined plan, it's, a, it's something that he designated ahead of time. He predetermined to send Jesus to the cross and that was based on his foreknowledge. And in this context, that foreknowledge means a, it's a forethought. God was planning and thinking before the foundation of the world, and he designed all of this uh, to, to work together for the purpose of sending his son, Jesus Christ, to display the glory of God on this earth and the, uh, and the authority of God and the judgment of God and the salvation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So I think it's really important to just note when you look at that, that as Peter's preaching this, he's arguing to the people that Jesus dying on the cross was not an accident. It wasn't something that God didn't plan for. It wasn't something, it wasn't as if God sent the savior and then everybody rejected the savior and killed the savior and surprise God. Well, now is going to have to do something special in order to bring the savior back, like maybe resurrect him from the dead. Peter's preaching to them saying, no, this was God's plan all along. This is not plan B, this is plan A. Much in the same way as when you read in the book of Genesis at the creation of the world, it would seem that even the fall of man was not plan B, but it was plan A because from the foundation of the world, God has ordained that Jesus come to bring salvation to those who would believe. So God is in sovereign control. He's not out of control. And mankind is not undoing the goodwill of God. Peter's saying God has had this as part of his plan. Jesus' power is on display, but you nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. Now you can imagine all the Jews standing around who believed that they were devout people that were followers of God. They believed that uh, they honored God or they thought that they revered God and were living somewhat righteous lives. And now they're being accused by Peter of murdering the Savior that they've been looking for all along. He says, you killed this Jesus 
by the hands of godless men. So now he's taking the debts. You know, in those days, they might have been able to feel like they could have washed their hands of their guilt because they weren't the ones that actually put Jesus on the cross. Much in the same way as Pilate standing in the temple, you know, um, uh, washed his hands because he didn't want anything to do and he didn't want responsibility for what was about to happen. I think a lot of the Jews and the religious leaders, they didn't want responsibility for what was taking place with Jesus. They wanted to distance themselves as much as possible. That's why they secretly paid Judas to go betray Jesus because they didn't want to do it themselves. You know, so there was a lot of uh, self-righteousness wrapped up in all these Jews who thought that because they stood from afar and let these other people crucify Jesus, that they weren't actually responsible. But here, Peter from the pulpit or from the rooftop is accusing them of the fact that they, in fact, are responsible for the death of Jesus. Now, in a general sense, we know that we are all responsible for the death of Jesus because it's not our hands that necessarily put him on the cross, but it was our sin. By way of our sin and our rebellion against God, Jesus went to the cross. He did that because he loved us. He did that because he cared for us, because God is demonstrating his love for us. He sent his son Jesus to die for us, but it's because of our sin. It's because we've rebelled against God. It's because we've chosen to disobey God. It's because we've chosen to sin against God. And it's our sin that crucified Jesus. So in a general sense, we are guilty of nailing Jesus to the cross through the hands of those godless men who were there that day to nail him to the cross. But in verse 24, look, look at what else God does. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. So even though men put Jesus to death, God raised him back up, but not just to put an end to Jesus's death. He's putting an end to the agony of death. That is uh, almost in a symbolic sense. Peter is saying he is, he is ceasing the He is bringing to an end the power of death for all who believe in Jesus Christ. It is, it is the removal of the permanence of death for those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ brought an end to the curse for us. And this is the work that God has done through Jesus. Notice this, he says in verse 24, that it was impossible for him to be held in its power. I love that statement. Meaning that it's impossible for Jesus to be held by the power of death. Now, it is impossible for us to free ourselves from the power of death. But it was impossible for Jesus to be held by the power of death. That's how different Jesus is from us. Jesus is God. We are not. We are human, completely powerless and incapable of freeing ourselves from the power of death. If we die in our sin, we die for eternity, completely powerless to do anything about it. But Jesus died in his righteousness and God raised him up because he quotes David here and says, God would not allow Jesus to remain in death. It was not allowed by the father, which I think is, again, another uh, beautiful word that was applied to that concept. And that not just that it's impossible, but God wouldn't allow it. There's no way God's going to allow his son to be permanently held by death. And look what he says. He quotes from Psalm 16, uh, this Psalm of David, where David says, in verse 25, David says of him, 
I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Now, when you read this in the book of Psalms, it, it sounds like David's talking about himself. And, uh, and then later, in a minute, Peter kind of clarifies David couldn't have been talking about himself because David's dead and he's still dead. And Jesus is not. So he's saying David was prophesying about the resurrection of Jesus. So as David was writing those words in the book of Psalms, God was using his words, this conversation that David was having with the Father, to prophesy of the coming of Jesus. Jesus Christ. So these words Peter is pointing out, he's clarifying for us and he's interpreting for us as a prophecy of Jesus. So this is what it says. I saw the Lord always in my presence. So that would be the father in the presence of the son. He is at my right hand, meaning that he's close by, he's standing close to him so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. So if that's a reference to the Son of God in the Old Testament, he's prophesying about the day when he will be in the flesh. But that flesh will have hope even in the face of death. Because you will not abandon, verse 27, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Meaning he's the Son looking at his Father saying, I am uh, my heart is glad, my tongue exalts, I live in hope because I know that you will not let me live, you will not abandon me to Hades, the place of the dead. You will not leave me and you will not abandon me, says the Son to the Father, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. God was not going to allow him to rot in the grave. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Jesus was assured of these things, even as he went to the cross. Jesus knew that his father was going to take care of him, even as he bore the burden of all the sins of the world, and his father had to turn his back on him because he could not look at the unholiness that Jesus was bearing upon himself on the cross. But all the while, Jesus knew that God was not going to leave him in that. Jesus was going to pay the price for all the sins of man, and he was going to bring them to the grave and suffer the, the pain of death. But he knew that God was not going to leave him there. God was going to resurrect him there. And then David kind of clarifies in verse 29, saying this is not really actually about David. He says, brethren, may I, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, you remember that God promised to David that, that one of his descendants would always be on the throne of Israel? And uh, David, as he was going to the grave, he was assured that God would keep his promise. So even as he was speaking these words and writing them down, um, they, they were uh, recording this prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ who would be the one who would permanently sit on the throne of David. There would no longer be anyone, any need for a new king after the coming of Jesus. He is the one who sits on the throne of David forever. And so then he says this, 
God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. In verse 31, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. So now this is Peter looking out at the, those who are standing there watching him from the rooftop and uh, all the other apostles. And he is saying, we are witnesses of this Jesus. He's looking at all the people saying, listen to, listen to me. Hear what I'm telling you about Jesus the Nazarene. This Jesus that you crucified was the one that God has appointed to be Lord and Savior of all mankind, of everyone who would call upon his name. This Jesus God has anointed to be in this position and God has taken care of him. God would not allow him to suffer decay. And he resurrected from the dead, which you all witnessed. You have seen him. Many of those people that were standing there probably saw Jesus before he ascended into heaven. Some of them saw him with their own eyes. And he's, Peter's appealing to their, to their understanding, to the fact that they saw the, the miracles, they saw the wonders, they saw the signs, they saw the resurrected Jesus. They said, you are witnesses of these things. That man, Jesus the Nazarene, that you killed, he's the one that came to be our Savior. Now, you could imagine in their, in their mind, they were probably thinking, well, if he is, we killed him. So... Now what? And Peter says, that's okay. Well, it's not okay, but he says, Jesus raised him from the dead. So you're killing him only fulfilled the will of God. Even though you bear the guilt on your hands for killing the Son of God, we all bear the guilt on our hands for killing the Son of God with our rebellion, with our sin. But in that, we have fulfilled the will of God. But Jesus resurrected from the dead. Why? This is what he says in verse uh, 33. So God raised him up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So he's saying now Jesus died. Yes, Jesus died. You killed him. But God raised him up again, and he has ascended into heaven. He now stands at the right hand of the throne of God, and he has sent to us the promise of the Father. We've received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Um, and he's saying, Peter's looking at them saying, this is what you're seeing. You're bearing witness to the evidence of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit now that Jesus has resurrected from the dead and has ascended into heaven. You're seeing evidence of the presence of God walking among us, dwelling within our hearts, and speaking through our lips. They were witnessing this fantastic miracle. These men standing on the rooftops, preaching in their own languages, everybody else hearing them in their own languages. They've seen the signs and wonders, and they're saying, you're witnessing the presence of the Spirit of God who's here for all who will believe. And this is what he says in verse 34. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, now he quotes again from this time Psalm 110, which we read um, at the uh, beginning of the service today. Um, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, 
Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he's saying, look, everything's been fulfilled. Everything's been accomplished. Everything that you look forward to is he's kind of speaking directly to the Jews at this point. Even though there's thousands of other people from all over the world listening to this message of hope and salvation that's, that's gone out to the whole world. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he's speaking here to the Jews and he's saying, you, this Jesus whom you have, or this Messiah that you've been looking for all along, this is him. You killed him, but he is Lord and he is the Messiah. And that's how he ended his sermon. And so it really kind of landed on their heart. He just kind of put it out there. And then it was upon them to believe or not believe, to accept it or to reject it. But notice here that I think what, what's interesting, and this is really important as we kind of finish up these last couple verses, um, Peter's not uh, begging them to respond in a specific way yet. These people heard this and they were pierced to the heart. And it wasn't because they had, um, it wasn't because Peter did a really good job explaining it, although I think he did. But it wasn't because Peter used the best words, although he did quote from the Old Testament, and those are really good words. They're inspired and inerrant. But I believe that it was because the Spirit of God used the words that Peter was preaching. God was preaching through Peter, and the Spirit of God grabbed the hearts of many of those people that were listening and caused them to feel convicted and broken over their sins to the point that it says they were pierced to the heart. Look at verse 7. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Now, that word pierced means wounded in conscience. That's what that means. Pierced to the heart means wounded in conscience. Their conscience became wounded. They realized their guilt. They realized their shame. They realized their sinfulness and their wickedness. The fact that they had taken the Messiah and they had killed him. They realized they were guilty of the blood of the Son of God. And I think the starting point for salvation for any person has to be a realization that we are guilty of the blood of Jesus. That is where salvation has to begin there. I think it's great to realize that there is a heaven and that there is a hell and we want to go to heaven and we don't want to go to hell. I think that's a good thing to realize and to come to a place where you believe that heaven actually does exist and you do believe hell exists and you believe that Jesus is the way to heaven. I think that's good. We need to believe that and that's a great place to, to be. But we have to, in order to understand and appreciate the value of our salvation and, and what it takes for us to be able to go to heaven, we need to recognize that we're guilty of the blood of Jesus. We killed Jesus in our rebellion, and we need forgiveness. Because if we don't have forgiveness, then we have to pay the price for killing the Son of God. Scripture says, um, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Which means that when we sin against God, we have to be punished. So, considering that we're guilty of 
murdering the Messiah, we have to be punished. We have to be judged for that. And since God is a good God, he's a good judge, then he punishes sin in a just fashion. So then we have to come to this place where we say, help me then, because I'm in a bad spot. I killed the Messiah. I have rebelled and sinned against God. I can't fix that. I am incapable of escaping death. I'm incapable of escaping the judgment of God. So what shall we do about that? What can I do about that? And I think that was the, the best question they could ask. They were pierced to their heart. They were wounded in their conscience. And then Peter, and then they said to the Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And I think that is the question that everybody needs to come to, to be able to recognize I'm a sinner. I've sinned against God. What can I do about that? And Peter's response was, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So now comes the invitation to respond. So Peter's one-point sermon was all about Jesus. And I'm trying to convince you so that you can know for certain that Jesus is Lord and Christ, and you crucified him. They were pierced to their heart, wounded in their conscience, and they said, what can we do about that? Can we be forgiven? Is it possible for us to be forgiven, for us to, uh, to have the guilt of that removed? Is it possible? And Peter's response, in essence, was yes. This is what you need to do. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to put this in context, because it's really important. Because um, if we don't put this in context with all of Scripture, um, we could mistake this verse, verse 38, as something that is chronological, something that has to happen in order. Um, in that, in some oftentimes, we read it that way, in that we need to repent, and then we need to be baptized, then we will be forgiven, and then we will receive the Holy Spirit. That's the way it's written. But that's not actually how it works. But in order to understand how it works, I think we need to understand the context. There's several things that happen when a person is saved, and it's kind of difficult, and the theologians will get into the weeds on this and have some pretty big disagreements about what comes first. All right. First of all, it's good to remember that salvation is by faith alone, not by works. So it's by believing in Jesus Christ uh, unto salvation. It is a faith that God creates in the heart. Well, that comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us faith. Scripture says no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws. So the Holy Spirit gives us faith. Faith is what saves us, which is not an action. It's not a work. It's not a deed. It's a gift that God gives to us. And it's through that faith God uses that to save us, but partnered with that faith is a spirit baptism and repentance. Repentance is an outward action that we're called. It's a response that we're called to give. It is an action. Repentance is an action. It's a deed. Um, but, uh, and so is water baptism. That's an action. That's a deed. But a spirit baptism is not something that we can do. We can't just go out and be spirit baptized. I, can, I can't go out and tell you to be baptized by the Spirit. I can go out and tell you to be baptized in water, 
but I can't baptize you in the Spirit. Only the Father can baptize you in the Spirit. Only the Spirit of God through the blood of Jesus Christ by faith. So in that moment of faith, some people believe that the Spirit of God regenerates a person first, then comes faith, and then comes the fruit of repentance. Some believe that faith comes first, and then the Spirit you know, baptizes you, and then comes repentance. It's really hard to know. And honestly, I'd just like to help you out and say I don't think we really need to know because um, it, it's, all, it, it's all a work of God. He does it in his way and in his timing. I think what's important to know is that God has his part that he does, and then we have a part that we're commanded to do. God saves us. He regenerates us. It's the Spirit of God who draws us to him. He gives us faith, and Peter says what we need to do is repent and be baptized. We need to repent and Trust in Jesus Christ. There are other passages of scripture where the apostles are preaching and people say, what must we do or what should we do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's a little bit different, kind of nuanced, but that's an indication of faith. What I want you to notice in here is the baptism that he points out. Uh, I think he is talking about a water baptism here. He said, I want you to repent and be baptized. That's a water baptism. Uh, But the baptism is in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, in the uh, um, uh, in those days, baptism was used in a number of ways. Uh, there was a ritual immersion used, a baptism, which was a ritual immersion for consecration of priests. Uh, there was also a baptism, the baptism of John, which was more like a uh, um, a conversion of the Gentiles to Judaism, because this was before, a uh, right right before the coming of Christ. So he was declaring the coming of the kingdom of God and people were believing in his message and people were repenting of their sins and converting to Judaism and he was baptizing them in water. And Peter is saying what you need now is to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You're not being baptized into Judaism. You're not being baptized as a priest. You're being baptized into um, Christianity, into faith. You're being baptized as an indication of what the spirit of God has already done. Now, if you read Romans, Paul's letters, he describes a lot of the inner workings of baptism and that it is a work of the Holy Spirit. Um, one verse I'd like to go back to since Peter did write this. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, baptism, he says, corresponding to this, baptism now saves you. Again, so it, that, that is, the wording there can be a little confusing. Not water baptism. Water baptism can't save you, but spirit baptism saves you. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And notice what he says about that spirit baptism. Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, what happened when they heard the gospel? They were wounded in their conscience. They were wounded in their conscience. And Peter is saying we need to appeal to God for a good conscience. We're appealing to God to be, to be right, to be made right. And that's, that, that's what repentance is. It's coming to God in our sinfulness, turning away for our sinfulness, and appealing to God to be made right with God. We're asking God to clean us, 
to wash us of our sin and to make us right with him, to turn us around from the direction that we were going, to take us out of our sin and put us into righteousness, take us from being wicked and making us righteousness. We're making us righteous. We're asking God to transform us. That is repentance. It's it's the act of going to God and crying out for forgiveness and for salvation and to be made right with God. And that's what Peter says here. He says it's an, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience, what? Through the resurrection of Jesus. So there's the faith in Jesus. We're trusting in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're believing that Jesus is who he says he is, did what he said he did, and will do what he said he will do. That's faith. So Peter is saying, or these people are saying, what shall we do? What can we do about the fact that, that we've killed Jesus by our sinful rebellion? And he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And I believe what Peter knows is that if they will cry out for salvation, the only way any of us would cry out for salvation is if we have first been stirred in our hearts by the Holy Spirit we have faith. The fact that they were even asking this question is probably an indication that the Holy Spirit had already grabbed a hold of their heart, given them the faith to believe what he was saying, and compelled them to, to say, help me. Help me fix this problem. I believe the Spirit of God was already at work in them, and I think if there's anybody that's listening to this message that would uh, are reading these words that would say, I believe in Jesus Christ, but I know I'm guilty of sin and I need to be forgiven. Um, the fact that you care and that you're convicted in your heart, that you're wounded in your conscience about these words is a sign that the Spirit is drawing you to Him. And so the response to that is repent. And I believe that if you would repent, that's probably an indication that you've already been Spirit baptized. The Spirit of God has indwelled you and is compelling you to turn away from your sins and to cry out to Him for salvation. And when we come to the Lord, He indwells us, He fills us with His Spirit, and we begin to see fruit and evidences of the Spirit. And then He tells them to go out and be baptized, which would be a symbolic representation of what God has already done in the heart. So He says, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is evidence that God dwells within. The Spirit of God. They were already seeing evidence of the Holy Spirit in the apostles. And they were saying, what is going on here? We're seeing these miracles. We're hearing these guys in our own languages. We've seen the signs. We've seen the wonders. We witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ. And now it turns out we're the ones that are guilty of killing him. And they're, they're saying, what do we do about it? And he says, look, if you'll repent, if you'll be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, listen, you'll know what it's like to have the indwelling spirit as well, much like we do. And that's what he's saying to these people. Cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It was really kind of a simple message. I know that I have a tendency to overcomplicate things. I will kind of weave in the theology of what comes first. It can be a little confusing, but it's really supposed to be simple. I think that's the point. Peter says, repent. And go get baptized. And um, it's not that the water saves you, but the Spirit saves you. And, uh, and I think it's a simple message. That's another reason why I believe in believer's baptism. If you have faith in Jesus Christ and you've never been baptized as a sign of what God's done in your heart, 
Um, it's a really great testimony, not just a great way to testify, testify what God's done for you, but it is commanded by God. It's kind of what a lot of times we say it's the, one of the first ways we can obey God is by being baptized because it is a public confession that we are no longer who we used to be. We are publicly proclaiming that Jesus is our Lord and not he's not just Lord and the Christ. He is my Lord and my Savior. That's what baptism is. It's a pro proclamation of that. So. Uh, for anybody who would be wrestling with their life, wrestling with whether or not you have a relationship with God, this simple plea this morning is repent and be baptized. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved is what scripture says. Uh, but as the believers in this room, I'd like to also consider you to just consider two, two viewpoints here to pray through. One, as listeners... As listeners, I think it's good. You know, we've, we've heard this message. We've received this message with joy. And the Spirit of God dwells within us and still dwells within us. I'm not compelling you now to go out and get rebaptized because you have a renewed excitement in your salvation in Jesus Christ. But I would compel you to remember that repentance is a lifestyle. It's not something you did a long time ago. But it's something that we live. We live in a heart of humble submission to Jesus as our Lord. It's a kind of a posture of life. Uh, I think daily we struggle with sin. So daily repentance should be part of our life. Should be part of our life. That's who we are in Christ. He's called us to live that life in, in appreciation of all that he's done for us. And it should be probably a fruit of the Spirit. And evidence that the Spirit of God is within us is that we continually are wounded in our conscience when we sin against God. If we can go on sinning and sinning and sinning with no wound in our conscience, the Spirit might not be in us. Because I don't believe that the Spirit would dwell within a believer and not continually convict them of sin. So, uh, I would encourage you as believers, I'm not encouraging you to doubt your salvation this morning so much as to say, since you know that you are, and the Spirit does dwell in you, deal with your sins quickly and consistently. And then also as witnesses, um, since we do bear a sense of this same type of mission where we are continually preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, I think that we can follow a similar model to call people uh, to listen to the story of Jesus. Compel people to listen to what God is saying through his word. If we can bring God's word to people and convince them to hear pieces of it as we explain it to them in different ways, whether it be vacation Bible schools or Sunday schools or a Bible study at, in our lunch break at work or whether it's a person that we know from our neighborhood that we take out to breakfast or lunch or something, if we can bring some of God's word to the table and compel them to hear what God is saying about them and about Christ, I think that's a good model to follow. And then call people to know for certain that Jesus is Lord and Christ. He's not just a God, he is the God. He's not just one of the many gods, he is the only God and all the other gods are false gods. And he, is, he has authority over this world and over our lives. And he is our savior. Yes, we're sinful. 
Yes, we deserve to be judged, but we have a Savior. Partner the judgment of God with the salvation of God. So I would just invite you as brothers and sisters in Christ to just pray through what it means to be a listener of the gospel and also a witness of the gospel as we apply these words. Thank you for listening to this week's Walk Through the Bible with Hope Fellowship. I leave you with these words from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.